0: This morning's passage has nothing to do with that. It's uh, <laughs> it's out of Genesis chapter forty-five, uh, and it's the last uh, passage for us in our kind of journey through Genesis. Uh, next week we begin a four-week series on forgiveness that I'm very excited about. It's a more topical study, uh, looking at what forgiveness means. Uh, it's fitting that today's passage is Genesis forty-five, the forgiveness of Joseph. Against his brothers. It reads Joseph, It reads in Genesis 45 verse 1. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room. And he said to his attendants. Out all of you. So he was alone with his brothers. When he told them who he was. He broke down and he wept. Phew. Have you ever been in that moment of forgiveness where you were offering forgiveness to someone that didn't deserve it <laughs> and you had been wronged and you carried all of that life's journey with you into that moment of confrontation? Hear the emotion and the raw just reality of this story. Joseph broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said of his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, of course, they're speechless in this moment. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. They thought he had died. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said once again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, And there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So listen, brothers, it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace And the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him. This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen. Where you can be near me. With all your children and grandchildren. Your flocks and herds. And everything you own. I will take care of you there. For there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise you, your household, and all your animals will starve. Then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you've seen, and then bring my father here quickly, weeping with joy. He embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept over them, and after they began talking freely with him, this is the word of the Lord. From my living room, I hear cries and screams, something bad has happened, I turn, I go into the living room, and there stands my daughter, without any visible injury, just crying, I said, Hadley, what is wrong? And she says, I have a boo-boo. And I say, let me see it. And depending on Scott where she thinks she has a boo-boo, she presents her arm or her leg or the bottom of her foot or her ear, sometimes her forehead, the back of her head, her elbow, whatever it is that she feels like is ailing her in the moment. And I kiss it and the cries go away. The cries of my daughter's pain has immediate provision ahead of her. It's the parent's kiss. It's the easiest way to satisfy a child. We will provide for you. When you're crying, we'll kiss it. I have a feeling that my daughter is going to grow in years, and the pain will develop. And it will become more intense and more involved. And it will probably be pain that we can't see. Though there will be broken arms, I hope not. Knock on I hope not, but if there is, there'll be real physical pain, but then there'll be pain that's not so physical, the pain that happens when we're bullied or the pain that happens when we're pushed around or when we're wronged, when someone stabs us in the back or gossips about us, tells a lie about us, tells a lie straight to us, (laughs) and she'll come running home looking for provision, looking for someone to provide for her. And her questions will grow like the questions of the characters in Genesis. Does God actually provide? Is God actually for us? When we're sold into slavery? Will God actually fight for us? When our brother kills us, will God hear our blood? Genesis chapter 4. When we seek to make our name great, and we're greedy, and we trample over everyone to get our way with power. Will God hear the cry of miscommunication and of selfish greed? Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Will God, when we're so convinced in our own intellectual wealth... That we step forward and we bite the apple because we feel like we know better than God? Will God hear us when our intellectual knowledge trips us up in our pursuit of greatness? Will God provide for us when we are barren and we cannot have children like Sarah in Genesis chapter 18? Will God hear us when we laugh at God's promises like Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? All through the book of Genesis is woven. This cycle of destruction and sin. One part of what it means to be human. To live with the pains of boo-boos, right? But the cries of these pains are way more involved than the cries of my daughters. The cries of these pains, like in Genesis 4.10 is the cry of Abel's blood that rises up from the ground and humanity turns toward this violent act and asks God, will you pay attention to the violence? When violence erupts in the earth, does God hear it? Does God see it? How will God provide for those? That are suffering with violence. And now in Joseph's story, it's the last story of the book of Genesis. It's the way these 50 chapters end. Will God pay attention to someone whose dignity has been stripped? Whose character has been sold into slavery? Does God provide for the promise that He's made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob? Jacob's very son, treated like a non human being. Will God pay attention? Will God see the injustice? What will God do with the oppressor? <laughs> Man, wake up, God. Can't you see what's going on here? Don't you have a heart at all, God? Hmm. Or, God, are you just the figment of Jacob's imagination to make you feel better, to make Jacob feel better when the world's gone awry? He just makes up a story about God, prays, and makes himself feel better. At the point of our narrative this morning, you see the raw emotions of Joseph. You feel them. Joseph, with a loud cry, sends everyone out of the room. Of course, all of the tribes of Israel at that point, the tribes of Israel will be Joseph's brothers. The other 11 brothers assume that Joseph is dead. That God indeed, that God's promise indeed died with the death of Joseph. But Joseph knows. Joseph knows who he is. Joseph knows that he's an inheritance of the great promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph knows. Joseph knows the promise has not died, but the promise lives within him. And in this moment, the moment of confrontation, the moment in which Joseph is going to unveil, Himself and show himself to the people who have caused him great harm. Here it is. The folks that have tried to kill him, that have tried to rob him of a name and of identity, his very family. This isn't some bully that's on the third hallway from the left, in least some in high school, that just hangs out there waiting to bully you. This isn't some cyber bully that lives on Facebook or that new anonymous app that you can just ask a question and then people destroy you why would you ever get on that thing what's the name of that app thank you thank you whoever said that sahara was that you rochelle you're hip (laughs) you're on it aren't you do you need someone to tell you that you're good rochelle you are good you are good you're on it right now is that what you said okay This isn't some anonymous, awkward for this side of the room. Uh, It's uh, not some anonymous bully or some anonymous app. These are kin. These are his brothers. You have any conflict in your family? Then you know. You know the emotion that Joseph is feeling. And so before he confronts them, he gets everyone else out of the room and carrying the burden of being wronged. You've been there before. In fact, you're imagining that moment. I bet you're imagining it right now. That moment where someone took your dignity. That moment where someone said something false about you that was not true at all. That time that someone made you feel less than human. And you had to be in the same room as that person. And the emotions that come along with that. And Joseph weeps. Where is God in the abandonment of Joseph? Where was he when he was down in the bottom of his cistern living in a pit? Where was Joseph when his robes, or where was God when Joseph's robes were stripped from him? Naked given to Egyptians. Where was God When Joseph was being accused of adultery. This is everyone's question. Except for Joseph's. Joseph knows. He knows. He knows that he doesn't stand before his brothers. Except for God's provision. No one else knows this. I don't know this. Joseph knows this. Until I reach the 7th verse of the 45th chapter, I have no idea how Joseph has made it out alive. But Joseph knows, and so he weeps. He weeps because he knows who he is. He knows to whom he belongs, and he knows what he's about to do. He knows he's the inheritance of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows that he belongs to God. And he knows what he's about to do. They're going to get off scot-free. He's going to forgive every last brother. What do they deserve? Oh, I assume they deserve whatever you're thinking of your perpetrator right now. They deserve that. To be beaten with soap and socks, I guess. Whatever's the worst thing you could ever think of. To be waterboarded. To be strung up by a stake and be made fun of in public. That's what his brothers probably deserve. If you haven't never read the story, I think it starts somewhere around the 30s in Genesis. Somewhere in there. Read the story of Joseph. You'll want to kill his brothers for him. But Joseph knows. Joseph knows he's not going to kill his brothers. Joseph knows he's going to forgive him. And so what's Joseph's response? The Hebrew word there. Has a connotation of surrender. When he weeps, he weeps tears of surrender. He gives in. He gives in to the very one who carries him to this moment. Where is God? God's been the one carrying Joseph through all this mess. See, it's easier sometimes for us to denounce all that is wrong. Have you paid attention to all the things that need to be denounced this past week? There's a huge list of things that you need to denounce before you take your next breath. It's easier for us to stand in line of all the things that need to be denounced. It's harder for us to name God in the midst of all the abuse. And here's Joseph knowing that he's not going to denounce. He's not going to name what he's against. He's going to name who he's for, and this comes at a personal cost, the personal cost of being disarmed of his own his own name, his own identity, his own dignity. Instead, he's going to name that God was with him when he was being robbed. And God was with him when he was being stripped. God was with him when he was sold as a non-human, as a slave. And not only that, but God used all of that. God blessed all of that. And he's going to forgive his brothers, and so he weeps. Well, the struggle to understand God's provision and presence is as real in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. It's hard for us when we talk about weeping, for us not to think about that famous passage in Scripture where Jesus also wept. It's in John, and it's that story about Jesus' best friend, Lazarus. He had died. Sisters sent for Jesus. He comes late. By the time he comes, Lazarus is dead. See, there's great I am statements all throughout the Bible. We read one this morning where Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what does he say? I am Joseph. There's these great I am statements all throughout Scripture. They mainly, what they're said for there is to undergird the fact that God is and God will be exactly what God said he will be. He is. He exists. He's alive. He provides. I am. Well, in the book of John, there's seven I am statements that Jesus says. Of course, what Jesus is using those I am statements for is exactly what you're imagining he uses them for to undergird the fact that he is God, that he is, that God is, that God exists, that God's alive, that God's in Christ. Seven I am statements in John, five of them happen before Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Mainly the one that says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. See, around Jesus is a crowd of professional mourners. Around Jesus is heartbroken Mary and Martha. Around Jesus is the real human reality of pain, of suffering, of death, and of injustice. And when Mary gets a hold of Jesus, Mary could care less about the five I am statements. Ooh, if she could just get a hold of the one who failed his responsibilities, grabbing him by the collar and pulling him close and saying with emotion, emotion of Joseph here, Jesus had you been here. Certainly, we've never said that, right? God, had you just showed up? Had you just provided for me? Will you ever even actually provide? I wonder if this is what Mary says in between the text to Jesus Jesus, are you actually, would you actually provide for us? Will you actually follow through? And so, what's Jesus' response to all of this? The world is going to hell in a handbasket around him. He's standing knee-deep in a tomb, in a graveyard. Everyone else assumes death is death is death. And as they cry out in pain that death has won, what's Jesus' response? He weeps. And I wonder if Jesus weeps because he knows who he is, that he is the bread of of life that he is the light of the world that he is the gate in which the sheep enter through that he is the great shepherd that he is the resurrection and the life that he is the way and he is the truth I wonder if Jesus knows exactly who he is, but the world around him is dying out of absolute pain and agony, wondering if God will actually do what God says he will do. And Jesus, he knows that he is the word in the very beginning. And in the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and no one needs to tell Jesus that. He understands that. He knows exactly who he is. That when he speaks, gardens come to life. And that when words come out of his mouth, Sarah's womb comes to life. And that all the words and the commission of Jesus, Tara Babel's put back together again with communication that comes from the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Jesus knows that when he speaks, restoration unfolds. Oh, Mary, will I provide for you? I'll do one more than provide for you. I'll be life for you when you're standing knee deep in the muck and mire of death. I will speak to you. I will cause the flesh to grow back on the bones of Lazarus. I will speak so far deep into the caverns of that tomb that I'll wake up the skeleton bones. I'll be like Ezekiel to you. And so I think he weeps. He weeps and he cries because he knows that in order for them to get it, he's going to have to take Mary and those professional mourning Jews and he's going to have to take Lazarus and Martha and Peter and James. He's even going to have to go so far to take Judas, that betrayer. And he's going to have to Bring them into his very body. They'll never understand until Jesus just gathers us all up into himself and that ministry of reconciliation happens within the very body of Christ. They'll never understand. And so he weeps because he knows that his work of resurrection is going to have to cost him his whole life. He's going to have to give of himself for the life of you. He's going to have to give of himself for the life of me. And so Joseph, standing in front of his perpetrators, begins to cry because he knows forgiveness is costly. It's going to cost him of vengeance, and it's going to cost him of hatred. And it's going to cost them of those Facebook posts. Telling everyone what's wrong with them. Forgiveness is not as easy as denouncing. Forgiveness is much harder. Forgiveness is offering all of your life for the perpetrator. If you want to storm against someone and stab them with a torch, then stab my body. Take all of me, I'm for you, I'm not against you. If you want to fight with your fist, then fight me. Come at me, offer all of myself to you. And Jesus knows, standing in this tomb of death, That in order to defeat this, it's going to have to be all of him. And Joseph standing in front of his brothers, he knows, man, to accept him as his own and to allow them to eat at the table which he's provided for them. It's going to cost them again all of the pain that he's been through. He's going to have to trust that God is even using this and that through the body of Joseph, God is coming to his brothers. That's good, y'all. And so, Joseph weeps. And as he weeps, he weeps tears of surrender. God, you can have the abuse. And God, you can have the pain. And God, you can have the disorganization. God, you can have the anarchy and the chaos. For through me, you will follow through with your promise that a land will be given to Israel and that the 12 tribes will thrive through me. He'll change this story. That it won't even be about these brothers. And so Joseph looks at him. And what does Joseph say? The ultimate sign of forgiveness. It's not you that got me here. What do you mean? Aren't they the ones that sold him? Aren't they the ones that betrayed him? But in understanding God's provision, Joseph's forgiveness has not only been grace to his brothers, it's been grace to him. And that Joseph begins to understand, man, that God was present even in the midst of disorganization and chaos and things that were about to close. That God was present. (laughs) Even when boards were telling us that we can't exist as an organization, God was present to the point that Joseph understands that we got here because God hasn't forgotten. Because God sees us. Because God knows us. That he somehow works in the midst of human sin. That human death and that human wrongs is not so powerful that it changed the hands of God. That Joseph understands, man that he begins to see the whole story differently. Maybe God has given me grace to persevere so that I could tell you that God is for you. Listen, now he doesn't denounce. Listen, I'm telling you, what our job is as a church in response to Charleston is a lot harder than denouncing things. He doesn't denounce. (laughs) He offers his whole body, all of his pain, everything that's been wrong, he offers it to them as the grace of God for their lives. And he says, I have been brought through by the rule of God so that God might be for you, friends. That God might be for you, brothers. That you might see that God is For you, our response to violence in this world, whether it happens in Virginia or happens here in Kansas City, our response to violence is to offer ourselves for the world, explaining that God is for them. Our response to organizations on the verge of closing is to name God and that God is for them and that God will not leave them nor forsake them and that God does not forget that the errors of human ways are not so powerful that it chains God from working. Joseph's story in the NRSV can be boiled down to seven statements, I think. I want to read those seven statements to you. Kelsey is Kelsey Maine is our administrative assistant this week. I went to her when I discovered this. And we had our own little worship service right out here in the foyer. It was awesome. I'm wondering. If you'll catch up on a theme, it's seven statements. I just want to read to you just Joseph's seven statements. See if it sounds familiar to you. And then I'm going to read to you Romans eight and then I'll be done and we'll carry on. So don't you worry, y'all. You're getting out of here, okay? I am Joseph. Come closer to me. I am your brother. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant here on earth. It was not you who sent me here. But God, I will provide for you. That doesn't sound like Joseph to me. That doesn't sound like Joseph to me. Paul writes in Romans, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? You hear that, Prodeo? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then is going to condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Pleading for us. Boy, that's good news. Can anything separate us from the provision of Christ Jesus' love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or we're persecuted or we're hungry or we're destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. No, despite all things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced, Paul writes, that nothing can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The band can come. And Pastor Dennis, you can get ready. I wonder if you this morning would close your eyes. And hear of the words of the Lord through Joseph to you. As if he's speaking directly to you. And as if these words are actually words from Christ. Imagine friends with your eyes closed that this is the Lord giving you the grace in which you may need. I am Jesus. Come closer to me. I'm your brother. God sent me before you to preserve your life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Oh, come on. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. I will provide.